Have you ever wondered why it was necessary for the Son of God to take on flesh? Have you ever just stopped to think that question? Why did Jesus become a man? Why not fulfill redemption in some other way? For example, could not an unlimited and sovereign God have ordained an angel to accomplish the task? Why not let one of his servants, his ministering spirits, to come and do the job? Could there not have been another way to save his people? Why then the incarnation? Why must the eternal God become fully man? The incarnation of Christ is one of the foundational tenets of our Christian faith. As a matter of fact, there would be no Christianity without it. The incarnation is simply indispensable to the message of the gospel. However, which way we cut it, however scientific we try to get about it, however philosophical we try to get about it, the incarnation is indispensable to the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, I think for those of us who have been Christians the longest, we do not fully appreciate the apparent absurdity of what we're asking non-believers to believe when we share the gospel with them. If we preach the gospel rightly, we are boldly, no qualms about it, asking the listener to accept that God became a man. That's right. The infinite God by whose word galaxies exist, by whose word every mountain stands tall, every person has breath, every microbe moves, took on finite flesh, complete with flesh, skin, bones, and blood, was laid in a manger as a helpless baby, was named Jesus, was born in a place like Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth, but why? This is the question we're going to explore this Christmas as we study Hebrews 2. We're going to base all this Advent season out of Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 gives us four primary reasons why it was necessary for the Son of God to take on flesh. Four of them. And we get to the first one today. As we will see from the text at hand, the first reason the Son of God became a man was to reign as king over all creation. To reign as king over all creation. I just want to invite you in. Can everybody take a deep breath? <sighs> That's right. Hebrews 2 is one of the most challenging passages in Scripture, and yet it is one of the best passages that show us why Jesus became a man. So let's go deep this Christmas, and let's rejoice greatly, okay? Now, in a secular society where people believe that there's nothing except the material world. There's nothing really all that spiritual. There's gold and silver. There's our 401ks. There's our careers. And there's nothing more. It's difficult enough trying to reason with people about God, right? To, so to, to come into a conversation with our secular co-workers who all they're thinking about is promotions and money and the things that they have and the next new buy and the Amazon wish list. It's extremely difficult to introduce any kind of conversation about God. Now imagine trying to convince people who could possibly suffer for believing such foolishness if they were Greeks or blasphemy if they were Jewish, that the idea uh, is true that God became a man. Imagine trying to convince people who now might die for it. Imagine trying to 
persuade people to believe that infinite God became finite man. And if you believe it, you could be crucified just like him. That's tough. And it's in that context of suffering that we find the letter to the Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews faces a dilemma. These are Hebrew Christians, and apparently the whole thing is written to warn them against abandoning their faith in Jesus. There's much we don't know about the letter. We don't know who wrote it, for example. Uh, We don't know much about the historical background behind the letter. However, what seems to be perfectly clear is that these Hebrew Christians were facing terrible suffering, terrible animosity, so much so that they were beginning to think, maybe it was better when I was just Jewish. Maybe it was better when I just did the Jewish practices, followed the new moon festivals, went to the temple and did the sacrifices. Following Jesus has gotten me nowhere. It's brought me suffering and hardship, so maybe I should be out. Well, the author's purpose in this letter is then to remind them, these Christians who are on the precipice of abandoning the faith, that Jesus is better than all those shadowy figures that the old covenant has. He's greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. You see, Joshua couldn't bring the people into rest, but Jesus can. He's greater than the Levitical priests who stand up year after year. In fact, he brings a whole new priesthood down to earth so that now there's not one priest after another, one sacrifice after another. There's one priest, one sacrifice offered once and for all for all mankind, and he stands perpetually as a high priest. There is now one who is greater than the bulls and goats that were offered, and he's even greater than the temple itself, the very connection point, the gateway to the presence of God. In that light, it would be foolhardy, absolutely foolish to abandon Jesus for lesser things. I think as we approach Hebrews 2, we're going to look at it with Advent lenses on, right? We're we're looking at it to better understand Christmas. But I think if we're to read it rightly, we have to read it in the context of the greater argument that maintains that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, for us, we may be like, well, duh, we knew that. We've known that for a long time. But to a Hebrew culture, angels were God's special messengers of his word and of his will. It was through angels that God delivered what he wanted from his people and gave them commands and called them into a relationship with him. Now, however, God has sent his son who has definitively and finally spoken for God. He's the final word, the last word. God, from God to God's people. And therefore, the Son is no mere angel, mighty and glorious though they be. He's greater than even the angels. Now, I've never seen an angel. I don't think any of you have. If you would have seen an angel in scriptures, you see these massive, mighty, glorious angels that you know, leave people falling to the ground like dead men. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, most of these people that talk about seeing angels and stuff, and then it's like, oh, yeah, we had tea, and it was nice, and, you know, a little, little halo behind. It's not the description of angels that we get. These are big, mighty, glorious, powerful beings. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is bigger than even that. Jesus is greater than even them, as glorious as they are. It was necessary for the Son of God not to come in the strength of an angel, 
not to come in the power of a spiritual being, but to come in the weakness of a flesh and blood man. He, for reasons that will be made clear throughout Hebrews 2, must take on flesh, must bear the skin and the blood and the bones and the sweat of humanity in order to accomplish God's purposes. And so if you're going to read Hebrews with me rightly, you must read it to confront our own inclinations to abandon our faith in Jesus. Those of us who have walked with Jesus can say that we haven't gotten much in life because of it, right? Yes, we have joy. Yes, we have worship. Yes, we have friendships and community. But we have a ton of suffering to boot, don't we? There's a lot that we've had to abstain from. There's a lot that we've had to move away from, sins we've had to repent, and it feels like crucifixion. And in fact, Christianity is described as taking up one's cross to follow Jesus. It's tough. We, like the Hebrews, are sometimes tempted to jump ship when the stormy seas come, when the breast cancer is diagnosed, when the tumor comes back as spreading when the job losses hit. We sometimes get tempted to give it up. It's not gotten us anywhere. Maybe that's you this Christmas. Maybe the pandemic, the job losses, whatever it is that you face, the cancers, maybe it has you wondering if you're better off following Jesus in the first place. Maybe you're even here and you're in some sort of spiritual slump. All the suffering is just kind of douse the fires of your affections for Jesus with cold water. I just, I want to, I want to invite you in. You, you are just like me. When we sing the old song, uh, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Man, do I feel that. How often are we, these people, just like the Hebrews, who just drift away from Christ? That may be you. And yet Hebrews 2 calls you to pick up the chain of your heart and to chain it, to lock it, your restless, wandering heart, to him who is infinitely more valuable for everything you have to cling, to grasp, to hold on to. Never give him up. Never walk away. Lose it all for the sake of knowing Christ. Hebrews invites your weary heart to remind yourself, to remember you've not wasted your life. You've not really truly given up all to follow Christ because in giving it up, you now have everything he is. He has given his all to you. And so whatever we give is truly nothing, isn't it? So if you're tired and you're weary, just let your heart come to Christ. You know, this last week, one of my seminary students who's a car salesman He's a new believer. He was a car salesman. He's been at the same job uh, for a while, and he's a, he just recently gave his life to Christ. And he was commenting on how, it was, how tough it was to balance success at work, as he's always done it, with Christ-like business practices, where he's trying to love others and love God at the same time. He described how tough it was to walk away knowingly from sizable commissions, because he knew that the person who was trying to buy this car from him, he could have twisted it and angled it to sell anybody a car. He can bend the rules. He has the permission to do whatever it takes to make the sale. But he knows if he does, it's going to sink them. Financially, they're just going to drop. They won't be able to buy 
Christmas presents for their kids. They, he looks at their credit. He's the, he's the finance guy. He's looking at it. And he just knows that if he sells them this car, it will be absolutely devastating to them. And so what do you do? Do you, as a Christian who's called to love God and love others, just make the sale? It's not your problem, after all, right? It's not, it's no skin off of his back. The car gets repoed, he still gets money. <laughs> he still gets paid. And so he was, he was explaining to me just how unimaginably difficult it is to walk away from a $5,000 bonus for making the sale. Because he had the boldness to tell the person, I don't think you can afford this car. We have a better one for you that you might be able to afford. One lady stormed out and walked away and then texted him a picture of the same car at a different car lot. My friends, it is tough to be believers. Is it worth giving up the, the bonuses, the promotions, the accolades at work in order to be able to live with a clean conscience? When you know that you're going to face an angry text message from a customer when you're going to face the derogatory jokes of your coworkers, they called him uh, Brother Juan from there, there on out. Like they just, they, his coworkers were making fun of him for his choice to follow Christ in that. What is, what is it going to cost you to follow Christ? You see, every day we face this. Do we choose the cross or do we choose our comfort? Do we choose the cross or do we face uh, losing everything else that brings us joy and happiness in this world? So I think if we're to read Hebrews rightly, we have to confront those same tendencies in our lives, right? Don't we all kind of face that problem at some time? Whether it's pornography, whether it's uh, our angry anger, whether it's our selfish ambitions, whether it's power struggles that we get into these little power toughs with other people, we face this decision all the time. Do we do what feels good and what makes us feel good, or do we follow Christ, which will feel like a crucifixion? We're faced with the same decisions that the Hebrews have to make all the time. And yet, I think every day we have to come back to the truth that Jesus is worth it all. Jesus is better than what you'll find on the computer. Jesus is better than what you'll find on the cell phone. Jesus is better than how you'll feel after you've lashed out at your wife. Jesus is better than what the money that you'll make. Jesus is better then all those uh, selfish ambitions in your own heart, looking for self-promotion. Jesus is better than all of those. And so reading Hebrews 2, we're invited to say what Philippians 3 says. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I just want to ask you, is that true of you today? Is it true that you can say, I count everything, my health, my finances, my 401k, my uh, respect, my reputation in front of other people's. I count it all loss compared to knowing Christ. As much as my head and mouth want to believe that I know and am fully convinced of the surpassing worth of Christ, my heart is full of amnesia. How many times do I forget it? At the moment that I have to make the choice. At the moment I'm faced with which way to follow, cross or no cross. Christ 
and his cross or my own crown. Every time faced this decision, and I think it's by reminding myself, this is how I find help every morning, is when I come back and I remember the, the incomparable worth of Christ over everything, the fires of my affection and my worship are rekindled afresh every single day. I wake up to a smoldering fire pit of worship. Smoldering. What do you do with a smoldering fire? You put more logs on it. You stir it up. So every once in a while, you just need somebody in your life to help you remember everything else you can see, feel, taste, touch, buy, whatever it is, is rubbish. There's something better. Just once in a while, somebody to step up and say, hey, just yet another reminder, Jesus is greater. And just to see your worship relight and rekindle just like that. So this Advent season, my goal as your pastor is not just to give you heady truths that Jesus became a man, but to pour on the logs of the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the kingdom to come onto already smoldering fires so that your worship will be hot and bright. So that this Christmas, when people see you as believers... They will not come to the cold, dim fires of your worship. But they may even have to stand back because the fire is so hot. They may have to shield their eyes because it burns so bright. But that's my goal this Christmas, and I pray that you'll join in that work because between me and you, we're all dead and lifeless people without the Holy Spirit's help. So we need the Spirit's work in this. With all that front matter, we're ready to get started in the sermon. So, we've dealt with the greater context. We're now ready to actually look at Hebrews 2.5. Uh, you know me, I can't, I can't preach a sermon without setting the context of the greater letter. For those of you that have been sitting in Adam's class, you're, you're coming onto a train that's already in progress, and so thank you for teaching that class, brother. Pray this will just be an addition into that and multiplication of what you've heard there. We're now ready for the logic of the incarnation. Here's what the author writes. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So, question on the table. Why was the incarnation of the Son necessary? First reason, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. You know, from the beginning, God did not intend angels to rule the world. It has not been his plan. When God made all things, he didn't intend angels to be the kings. They're ma massive and glorious. And if I were to guess who would be the, the best pick for being a king, I would not pick man. We're tiny, right? We're like lunch meat for grizzly bears, okay? Look at us compared to elephants, and we can't 
We can't hardly swim the English Channel. You put us in deep water, we drown. We can't get to the far reaches of space. We are small, insignificant creatures. I would pick a big angel. Why not? You know, Gabriel's cool, but maybe Michael. We know he's big. Let's follow him. Why not have him as the king? And the simple answer is this. God never planned that to be the case. God didn't plan for angels to rule. Yes, they might have been your best pick. They weren't his best pick. His best pick was man. The royal place belonged to the small ant at the bottom of the mountain. The small and insignificant creature was to rule it all. Why? Because it was in the smallness of man that God's bigness would be made known. God can choose a small man, put him over all things, and the glory of God be seen in that. We have a big, massive, mighty angel ruling it. Then all glory to the big, massive, mighty angel. Wouldn't be as clear to us that God works great things through small things. The small things of the world, the weak things of the world, display the strength of God. God made man limited and crowned him with glory so that in his smallness, God's glory as creator would be seen. And so it's it's because of that that it's not to the angels that they were to rule. It's even more surprising that when we continue to think about our finiteness, some of you are feeling this very much so in, in the weather change, right? Hurt knees, hurt backs, all this kind of stuff. We're very finite and weak people, pained people. And yet the author of Hebrews and the author of Psalm 8 cannot get over the fact that God has made us lower than the angels, but he has crowned us with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under our feet. Isn't that strange? I mean, we're so small that the author has to ask, what is, mine that, what is man that you are mindful of him? Like, you even remember we exist. <laughs> that is strange to think of an infinite, all-powerful, almighty God remembering that you're here. I sometimes put things in places and totally forget they're there. There's times I make promises to call people, and it's not because you're unimportant. It's just because I'm so finite that I forget, and yet God never forgets anyone. God is mindful of man, and not only that, he cares for them, and then he crowned them with honor and glory. You see, they're basing their theology of mankind off of Genesis 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The outcome of the divine image, when God placed his image in us, we, we, you know, scholars tend to argue what it was the image of God. Thank the Lord, it doesn't mean that we look like God, right? Because for some of us, that would be very bad news. Um, But for most of us, uh, the image of God, what this means is we reflect God. All of us were made to image God in that way. Every single human being to image God. Well, how do we image God? According to Genesis 1, to have dominion on the earth. It was to reign over every fish that swims, bird that flies, and living creature that moves. As insignificant as you may seem, as every human may seem, we alone are the unique image bearers. You see, not even the angels can claim to be the image bearers of God. They see the face of God, but not one angel bears the image of God. 
Only humans. Do you feel a little bit more unique now? Not one creature in this universe bears the image of God like you do. Now, as a side note, doesn't that inform the way we should treat people? If this truth is true, if every single human was uniquely made to bear the image of God in a way that not even angels can, if it's true that every human being was made in the image of God in order to reflect his glory, God has made every single human with a great royal dignity. Every single one of us. Because all humans are made as the image bearers of God. All humans are inherently royal people. Inherently royal. You know, the fall didn't change that. We're still made in the image of God. There's nowhere in scripture that you see that the fall suddenly meant that we're no longer made in the image of God. No, we're still made in the image of God. We're just tainted in that image. There's mud on the mirror. But we're still very much in the image of God. Mankind was made to be kind of a type of vice regent, reigning on earth in such a way that God's kingdom would be seen in heaven. Right? There's a reason Jesus prayed, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom on earth, God put man as king so that when, when all creation saw man, they would think of the greater reign of God in heaven. That was the intention behind creation, was that as people, we would together reign on earth, have dominion, being stewards of God's creation in such a way that the birds, the fish, the elephants, and the stars themselves would be reminded that there's a God in heaven who reigns. We've fallen pretty far from that, haven't we? And yet, the demand that we hold every human life, regardless of a person's age, their ethnicity, their gender, or any other classification known to man, that we hold them in the highest esteem as people who have been made by God in his own image. God himself has crowned man with glory and honor. You spit on another human being, you spit on the image of God. You punch another human being, you punch someone who bears the image of God. You curse them. You curse the image of God. That's the, that's the point. Every single person, no matter whether you disagree with them, like them or not, you are called to respect and honor the image of God because God made man to be kings. For the sake of not excluding the women, queens. Now, we're not all kings and queens like we should be. We're fallen kings and queens. We've chased after our own kingdoms. Leave it to God to judge those who don't submit to his reign. But for us, what is it for us? We are to respect, to honor, to love, and to care for those made in his image. Regardless of your political opinions, regardless of your, your uh, news media information, whatever it is, you are called to a simple task as a king or queen made in the image of God, and that is to honor and glorify God in the way that you love others who bear that image. Very simple. Be kind. Love, respect. 
So according to God's plan, man's dominion was to be comprehensive, right? We've looked at the image of God, but now what was he in charge of? Everything. Everything was put in subjection under man's royal stewardship. Hebrews 2.8 says, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The singular pronoun him here in this verse is a bit ambiguous uh, and, and seems to speak of, but it seems to speak of man in general, right? So this is him, mankind, okay? So that's, that's what it's speaking of. I don't think it's speaking of Jesus just yet. It's going to get there. It speaks of him specifically, but it speaks of us, mankind, more broadly. Man was made to rule. Nothing was outside of our, subject, outside of our control, but we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, because of the rebellion of man, man's dominion is no longer apparent. Our kingly nature, our queenly nature has been soiled a bit. We don't see each other even as we should. We don't see ourselves as we should. We don't act like we should. It's not apparent that God has made us to be royal dignitaries who image him, is it? My wife can tell you that Justin Jackson on a Friday night is not someone that you would think was destined for royalty. In the same light, though, I think we're called to press our eyes even further beyond not just what man was made to be, not just what man is, but what Christ is remaking man to be. You see, there's one key truth that's true, just as G.K. Chesterton says, Whatever else is true about man, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. There's a key truth I would add to that. Man is not what he will be because of what Christ has done. Sin has corrupted man's reign. It is difficult to see how all things have been subjected to our feet, especially in a world so filled with death and cancer and hatred and police shootings and racism and tensions and all these things that we see. This does not seem to be the good world that God made. You know, there's once upon a time that God declared this place very good. When was the last time you described this world in that way? Maybe you've never described the world in that way. The world's completely fallen. You see, when Adam obeyed Eve and the serpent, he essentially allowed his own dominion to be flipped, turned upside down, according to French Prince, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? This got absolutely lopsided. Man subjected himself to the serpent. The serpent became king. And it's in that dark dominion that light has shone. The phrase not yet, though, gives us hope, doesn't it? Things are not the way they should be. And the author of Hebrews would say, they're not yet what they should be because it's not the way that things will remain. Man's fallen dominion will be restored. But for that to happen, humanity needs a hero, a champion who will win back the fallen kingdom. So now we come to Jesus, the regal royal man. See, the writer's logic is fairly straightforward. God destined humans to rule the earth not the angels. Therefore, if the son was to physically rule over all things on earth, then it was necessary for him to become a flesh and blood man. You you track the logic so far? Men must rule. Therefore, the son of God must be a man. 
And in this, we see how Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2, though they speak of us in general, they speak specifically of Jesus Christ. Humanity sinned, subjugated the dominion to death and destruction, but Jesus has come to restore it. He is the new Adam, the first installment of the new kingdom that's to come, the first installment of the new world. He acknowledges in this chapter that we do not yet see everything in subjection to man, but it's not going to remain that way. We may not see the world as it should be, but we see him who is for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What a gospel-packed explanation. (laughs) Bad news, bad news, bad news. Man was royal, man wrecked the kingdom. When we were at the steering wheel, it went to pot. And yet there's a new king. So let's just unpack it just a little bit. In his incarnation, Jesus humbled himself. And I want you to hone in on the phrase, for a little while was made lower than the angels. Think of how great that condescension actually was. Has anyone ever volunteered for a demotion? Happily. Has anyone ever stepped forward and said, subjugate me. Put me into slavery. I'll joyfully go forward into it. Has anyone ever said that? The son of God has. You see, as the second person in the Trinity, he was the one to whom angels bowed. It was by his word. The scriptures are clear. For by him and through him and to him, all things existed. And yet this creator who is above all becomes a little lower than the creation. I just can't fathom that kind of condescension. The high king of heaven steps down and subjugates himself to lower than an angel. And if you think that was great condensation, then let's take it further. He didn't just become lower than an angel. He became lowly as a man. He didn't set aside his divinity. He was still very much God. But in his deity, he fully accepted the finite limitations of humanity. He took upon himself the weakness of infancy. Almighty God, almighty God spoke the Milky Way into existence. Almighty God, that the psalm says that all the oceans fit into the palm of his hands. Almighty God, wrapped in swaddling cloth and placed in the manger where animals eat. He experienced hunger and thirst. Almighty God that never needed to eat, never needed to drink, never needed anyone to hand him a glass of water. Almighty God who could stay awake 24-7 and never need a shut eye. He suddenly becomes tired and sleepy just like the rest of us. So he condescends. He becomes a little lower than the angels. And then he becomes a man. But that's not where the condescension ends. He became the lowest form of man. Do you realize the beauty of the gospel? You see, it would have been sufficient in my mind for him to come as a dignitary. 
to, to become God incarnate and to be the son of a president, the son of Caesar, the son of a rich man. That is not how he came. You see, when he began his descent low, he went the lowest he possibly could. He emptied himself of his divine rights, something none of us tend to do well. And he took on the form of a, we say servant in English, to lessen it up, the form of a doulos, the form of a slave. High king of heaven. High king of heaven. Creator of all. Spoke everything into existence, that guy, yes. Becomes a man lower than the angels, but not just a man, the slave of all men. He didn't just want to come into the dirt, he wanted to come into the muck, into the mud. He not only became lower than angels, he became lower than you. He condescended himself beneath you and all your power and majesty and might. Why? To save you. Jesus didn't placate to power struggles. You tried to make yourself better than Jesus. He let you. You wanted the most comfortable spot in the cot, in the, in the hotel room. You had it. You wanted the place of honor and glory. You wanted the head of the table. He gave it up. Because he wanted to be lower than you. Now that's condescension, but it doesn't end there. You see, high king, lower than the angels, becomes a man, becomes a slave. But then here comes the pit. He died the death of a slave. He humbled himself even to death. Even in, in, in the apostle Paul seems to see the amazement in this. Even to the death of a cross. My friends, there was such a time that you couldn't say the word cross without people gasping in horror. Like this was just unthinkable. Do you realize common people did not die on a cross? You and I would not have been citizens, would not have been candidates for crucifixion. We're too wealthy. Uh, we, have, we have too much citizenry power, right? The only people who could be killed on a cross were two people. Insurrectionists against Caesar, dogs, right? So barbarians, Greeks, and all these other people that would have tried to fight against Caesar, they could die on a cross as an example. Or common slaves. You could murder a slave in that way. Wasn't a big deal to them. Average Joes, they got beheaded. They got speared to death, shot through with arrows. But no one but a slave died on the cross. You know, if I were to pick my own form of execution, I don't think I would have picked that. But that's how the lowest of men die. And so Christ died as the lowest of men. To save high, arrogant, braggadocious people like us. Man, it just makes my heart weep at all the things of pride that I've seen in my own heart this week. Has anyone else just, just sensed the pride that we let our heads get so swollen? And Christ came beneath me and died my death on a cross. I can't condescend that low. You say something mean to me, I'm giving it right back. You power struggle with me. I pick up the other end of the tug of war rope. Jesus laid it down so that you could be saved and exalted with him. 
Is anyone not feeling love this Christmas? Because that's love. Condescension we could never fully fathom. And yet it's this same glorious condescension that we celebrate this Christmas. The same made lowness. He became the lowest of men. And as a result, he then was exalted to the highest of kings. But when he was exalted, he did not forget his people. He raised them up with him. We have a U-shaped gospel here. Christ came down and then brought us up with him. Every single human being from slave to king can be justified in the presence of God through faith in him. He was a suffering servant, crowned to be the son of David, who reigns over all. And my friends, just as a moment of application, is there any condescension too great for you to do? Is it really impossible to overlook the offense? Is it really, truly impossible to let someone slight you and to walk away? Is it really, truly impossible to love that other person? to serve your wife, to serve your husband. Husbands, do the dishes for your wives. It's not that great of a condescension, I hate to tell you. Not actually a condescension at all compared to the fact that those dishes are there because your wife cooked for you. My friends, is it, is it too much of a condescension to apply this sermon today by walking across the room and asking that person we know we offended to forgive us? Is it too much of a condescension to go to the person that we absolutely can't stand and haven't been able to stand for the better part of 18 months and put our arm around them and just say, hey, I'm going to pray for you this Christmas. I love you. Too great of a condescension? I have my concerns about where they stand. Who cares? Condescend. You don't think Christ had his concerns about where we stood? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, condescend. He condescended, he lowered himself, and then he was exalted. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is king. You see, both Paul and the author of Hebrews wants us to see the kingship of Christ. He is the royal Christ, the royal son of David. At the moment, yes, things are not the way they should be. Wrongs exist that desperately need to be made right. Enemies obstinately stand against God and his people. All creation groans. We are reminded of it when a police officer is taken from his family just weeks before Christmas. We're reminded of it when people have to go back for chemotherapy and back for chemotherapy. All creation groans. And so to be told of a world to come where there's a restored dominion and where all groaning ceases and is replaced with the sweet melody of praise may seem fanciful to you. But some things, though they may seem too good to be true, are still true. And that's the gospel that we hold out here at Grace Church. The world is broken. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we do see one thing. We see him. 
we see him. Him who? Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. In other words, your eyes may not see it. And it's at that moment that you see the wreckage and the darkness that you lift your eyes to the horizon and see the dawn. You see the Christ. You see him reigning on his throne. Everything is in absolute chaos and turmoil at this very moment. It is peace in heaven at the right hand of God. And he brings peace to us. When the king returns, all that's wrong will be made right. Winter will meet its death. And we shall have spring again. Right? So far, the logic's been pretty straightforward. But I think, I think we would be remiss to, to really hone in more. We've talked about this condescension. Some of this may seem repetitive to you. I want to dwell on the death of Christ and its purpose in his incarnation. Okay? By becoming a man, the Son of God was qualified to be king of all in the truest, fullest sense we could possibly imagine. But the author of Hebrews 2 doesn't want you just to know that Jesus is king. He wants you to know how Jesus has become king. He wants you to understand where Jesus' crown has come from. It may be helpful for you to know that Hebrews, uh, then and still today, see the cross as a major stumbling block in accepting Jesus as the Messiah. No self-respecting king would allow himself to die in such a way. You see, to die on the cross was symbolic of dying under God's curse. How could the Messiah die under God's curse? It simply can't happen. It's foolishness. Blasphemy to believe that. The author turns that on its head and says, no, it's, it's precisely because he was subjected to the cross that he is king. The cross reveals his kingship because of the suffering of death. He has been crowned with glory and honor. As is true with the rest of the Old Testament, the writer understands Jesus' death to be the foundation of his royal glory. Why is he king? Because the crucifixion was actually a coronation. The cross led to the crown. You see, Jesus himself spoke of his death in this way. When the moment of his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion was approaching, Jesus announced, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, not to die. Do you realize what he said there? He should have said to be crucified. He chose the word glorified. And then he has a play on words when he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What does he mean by lifted up? Two things, lifted up in crucifixion and lifted up to the throne. It's one and the same to him. Isn't it crazy to think of how this gory, nasty cross was actually the royal coronation of the son of David? When people said, hail, king of the Jews, little did they know how appropriate that was. When they put the crown of thorns, it's, it's thorny, yes, crown nonetheless. When they dressed him in a royal robe, when they put the placard above his head, little did they understand just what they were doing. Jesus is king. The cross proves it. Jesus has the crown because he bore the cross. Isn't this view, this understanding of glory and exaltation so antithetical to how we view suffering? Don't we tend to, if you're like me, you tend to think of suffering as incompatible with glory, right? Glory and suffering cannot mingle together. They're on the opposite spectrums. The cross calls you to correct this poor mistake. 
This is a terrible mistake to believe it in this way. Suffering is the means to exaltation. Suffering is the very gateway to glory itself. Jesus reigns as king because he tasted death for you. And you will, be, you will taste death and then experience the same resurrection. The writer of Hebrews sees the cradle and the cross, and he cannot separate them. They're one and the same. Jesus took on flesh to be king of all the earth. On the other hand, he is king of all the earth because he died to redeem it. Without being born as a man, he could never die, right? Only flesh and blood things, only things that bleed die. So if he didn't take on flesh, he would never die. He could never be king if he didn't die. He must die. The cradle leads to the cross, the cross to the empty tomb, and the empty tomb to a renewed world free from death and corruption. In this, I hope that you have hope. You are going to suffer, and you have to suffer and be a Christian. I'm sorry, it's just a part of the walk of life. If you're new to the faith and you thought it would get better, it doesn't. Not in this life, anyway. You feel better about it, but it doesn't feel good, okay? You're just going to suffer, and you need to know that. But here's the point. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our great champion tasted death and sucked all the bitterness out of it so that he could give you a cup full of sweet resurrection. That's what Jesus has done. He had to take on flesh to do that. He destroyed death. Death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. Jesus has overcome them so that you can bear with the suffering that you have, knowing that your death will lead to the very same resurrection that he had. So, why should we not abandon our faith in Jesus? Why should we cling to our hope in the man who was born in Bethlehem? All other men fail, don't they? So why should we trust this one? Hebrews 2 wants you to know your Redeemer King has come. He is God who took on flesh. He took on flesh to die. He died to reign. There was no other way. Jesus must be fully God, fully man, if we are to be saved and if he is to be king. That's reason number one. Come back for the next three weeks for the next three answers. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we worship this Jesus, our king. Lord, just as C.S. Lewis said, this world was never right except for when a son of man reigned as king, and that is true of Jesus. You have made man to reign. We failed And yet Jesus as the true man, the royal regal man, he has restored the dominion and we praise you for that. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.